What's up, guys? Thanks for coming to our Kaafa and Miss You podcast. Here, you will find resources to help you grow in real devotion, real community, and real responsibility. So you can learn to love Jesus, not just for a season, but for a lifetime. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Uh, Jesus, we love you. We need you so, so much. Please speak to us tonight, O oh God. Lord, I pray that every word would come in the tone that you that you mean, Jesus. We can't hear the way that you said these things, Jesus. We can only read them, but I pray that your tone and your gentleness would be evident, oh Jesus, that the way that you speak with love would be clear and that your words would be, they would be heard with soft hearts. We need your help, amen. Amen. Cool. So like Taylor was saying, the first half of the semester we were talking about God's reclaim. Um, using the book of Galatians, we're talking about all that Jesus has done for us. Before we loved him, or even thought about him, he acted decisively to win us back to himself. We were dead, and Jesus gave us life. We were broken and ugly with sin, and he has made us whole and beautiful. And we talked about how only Jesus can do this. No other love, no other desire, no other person or aspiration can bring us this health and this healing that Jesus gives to us. Nothing else can rescue us from what otherwise would have been an endless and certain death. Now we've been talking about what we ought to relinquish back to him. We are the ones that God has made and he has a right on our lives simply because of who he is. Yeah. For no other reason. Yeah. God has every right not only to tell us what to do, but he has every right to a relationship with us. And yet he chooses to allow us to choose for ourselves whether we want to be with him forever or not. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we ought to be willing to give up anything and everything to be with him. Yep. So with that, we're going to invite Matt Hubbard up to read our scriptures for tonight. Let's give him a hand. some context, we're going to be reading from Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 1, the first 12 verses, and then we're going to skip forward to the next chapter, chapter 4, and read the first 17 verses in that chapter. So what's happening is Moses has killed someone, he's run off, he's got a family, he's gotten married, he's been there 40 years in the desert, and he's running from God, and he's running from Egypt, and then he encounters God in the middle of the desert near this mountain. So this is where we're going to pick up. Verse, verse 2 here in Exodus 3. There an angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire. And, sorry, I don't use the mic very much. Moses saw that, saw that through the bush and saw that the bush was on fire, although it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see what this strange sight is. Why did the bush not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had come over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, 
for the place you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of Egypt of the Egyptians, and to bring them out of, the, out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, and Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of Israelites have, has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that you, that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Yes, yeah, so now we're going to jump over to chapter 4. All right, so, so far, yeah, let's give him a hand. That's a lot, right? So, so far, God has told Moses um, to go, and he gives him some specific instructions that we're going to skip over for the sake of time. We're going to skip over and start in chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me, or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you. Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord says, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out his hand and took a, the hold of the snake by its tail, and it's turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, so that they may believe that the, that the Lord, the God of the fathers of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Put your hands in your cloak. So Moses put his hands into his cloak, and when he, he took out, when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become white as snow. Now put your hand back in your cloak, he said. So Moses did so, and when he brought it back out, it was restored, like the rest of his flesh. The Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to you for the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs from you or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to me to be your servant. I am slow to speech and tongue. The Lord said, who gave human beings their mouth? Who gave them? Who who makes them deaf or mute? Who makes them? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it, it is is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. But Moses said, "Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else." Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, "What about your brother, Aaron the Levite?" I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak, and I will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if, as if he were your mouth. 
and as if you were guided to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform signs with it. Thank you so much, Matt, for sticking with it. That was a long passage. But yeah. It's a crazy story, isn't it? Yeah. You stop to think about it. In God's interaction with Moses, there's a few things that should shock us. Now, most people are intrigued by the burning bush. But if you believe in the existence of God, that should surprise you. What is it to God to make a bush burn? Or to speak out of a bush? If you believe in God already, that's not such a crazy thing. The most shocking thing in this passage is not the bush, but it's that God was willing to talk to man. And that he had compassion for his people. To those that don't know God, this should be the thing that draws the most attention. The first thing that God says to Moses is, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Apparently, God is so other, so pure, so holy, that Moses doesn't even deserve to stand in the same place as him. And yet here God is appearing to this murderer, this national traitor, this man who can barely talk. And even more shocking, God tells him that he has heard the cries of his people. Apparently, these humans are so wicked that they don't deserve to stand on the same ground as God. And yet, God has heard them crying out in their suffering. And not only that, he said, I am concerned about them. This means that God is able to feel and know the pain of the humans that he has created. And even though we are sinful, something inside of him draws him to us. And he acted decisively to help us and to relieve us. This is a big realization about himself that God was bringing to Moses. He was concerned about his people. Now let me ask you something. Are you concerned about others? Do you really care what happens to the people around you? It is unlike God to be unconcerned about the world and about the people around you. When others are hurting, do you notice? Do you allow yourself to think about their pain if you notice it? Or do you brush it off and think about whatever you were thinking about? When you notice others in pain, do you act decisively to help them? Or are you too busy with your own concerns? What are you concerned about? Everyone's concerned about something. Ask yourself honestly, and you'll find out what it is that you really care about. Now tonight, we're gonna talk about something that God cares about, something that is close to his heart. What is God's solution to his concern for the world? God's solution can be found in the natural outworking of his own character. We see in this passage, God is holy. He is so far above all of us in his selflessness, in his reasoning, in his self-control, in every way imaginable. So much so that we are not worthy to stand on the same ground as he is on. But God is also compassionate. He is sensitive to the feelings and needs of his creation, and he is concerned about them. Yeah. 
God's holiness and God's compassion combine to result in God's command to make disciples. Discipleship is God's solution to all the greatest problems in humanity. God chooses to save men through the obedience of men. Now Taylor's been talking for the last couple of weeks about how in other parts of the world to be a Christian, you have to be willing to sometimes literally lay down your life as a martyr. And I'm sure that you've wondered at times, just as I've wondered, if I were asked to lay down my life for Jesus, would I do it? The reality is, if you won't live for God, you certainly won't die for him. Come on. Elizabeth Elliot wrote a biography called Through Gates of Splendor, in which she tells the story of her husband, Jim Elliot, who died sharing the gospel to a native tribe in South America. She said that the death of a martyr, dying for God, is merely the natural conclusion of a life that was lived for God. If someone was willing to live for him, it would only be the natural course of action that when they die, they do that for him as well. In my favorite musical, Hamilton, there's a scene where George Washington is mentoring Alexander Hamilton, who has this desire to make his life count. He says, your head full of fantasies of dying like a martyr? Dying is easy, young man. Living is harder. And we laugh at that because it's a little cheesy. But it's true. It's true. You die once. You live day by day, moment by moment. It's a lot of smaller decisions. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's a little scary, isn't it? These people who are saying, Lord, Lord, that think they know him, coming to him and saying, hey, I know you. And he's saying, I don't know you. You didn't do my Father's will. What is the will of my Father? That becomes a very important question, doesn't it? If you won't live for him, you won't die for him. And if you don't love him, you won't live for him. And if you don't spend time with him, you won't love him. How could you live your life for someone you don't know? Yeah. And how can you know someone that you've refused to make time to be with? Some of you are struggling to live for God. And it's because you've never taken the time to start getting to know him. You've got to set a time and a place. You've heard so much through the grapevine, but you don't know how to talk to him, and you don't listen to what he's saying. If you'd stop, he would, he'd talk to you. I promise. He wrote you a whole book, but you don't know what it says. But for those of you who have got to know him, and especially recently, what does it look like to live for God? To live for God is to love him and to make him known. To love, some, to love someone is to love what is dearest to their hearts. God knows that the only thing that will help his creation is for them to come a saving knowledge of who he is and what he has done for them. God's holiness and God's compassion result in God's command. Make disciples. We must both approach him humbly and obediently, recognizing that he is holy, and also 
sympathize with him. We must feel the pain he experiences when we look at the condition of his people and the condition of his world. We must be concerned for the world and for the people around us. Moses was challenged by God in this moment with him to do two things, to go and to speak. God outlined the situation for Moses and then he immediately said, so now go, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. God sent him because he wanted to use a man to save a man. Later God told him, now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. God knew that only going was not enough. He told Moses that he must speak the truth to truly affect the hearts of Pharaoh and the Israelites. But Moses did what many of us do when faced with responsibility. He made excuses. Come on. Did you know that in New Mexico, 45%, 45% of homes only have a single parent? Some of you may have grown up in that situation. You know what that's like. Fatherless homes have resulted nationwide in the following statistics. And this is really sad. 63% of suicides before the age of 18. 90% of all homeless and runaway children. 85% of children who have behavioral disorders. 80% of rapists who experience anger problems. 71% of all high school dropouts, 75% of all patients in chemical abuse centers under the age of 18, 85% of minors in prison, and 71% of pregnant teenagers. Our state, our nation is in chaos because people choose not to take responsibility for the things that are important. Men in the room, You don't have to be 25 or 30 before you become a man. You become a man when you start to take responsibility for the things that are important. Do your homework. Do your dishes. These are things that grown men should be able to take care of. Right? How are you supposed to lead a girl in marriage and take care of her soul if you can't become friends with an 18-year-old guy and tell him about Jesus. It's ridiculous, right? But if you can take care of a soul and be responsible for someone's eternity, someone that belongs to God, I promise you, you can take care of anything. That's good. If men would learn to take responsibility for their actions and be strong men, it'd be a lot easier for women to step up and take responsibility for being strong women. Right? Yeah. But most of the time, the thing that keeps us from responsibility is our excuses. When we don't want to do anything that sounds painful or difficult, we make up a reason why we can't do it. When Moses was asked to go and to speak, he did everything he could to think of a way out of it. Moses' first excuse was his own unworthiness. His own unworthiness. Moses said to God, 
Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? But the response is this. And God said, I will be with you. Yeah. Now, the funny thing is God didn't argue with Moses about being unworthy. He didn't, he didn't say, no, you're worthy. He didn't say that. But God did speak as if the fact that God was with Moses simply made Moses' own unworthiness irrelevant. The same Jesus who has made us worthy of hearing the gospel will also make us worthy of sharing it. Yeah, that's good. And if God is for us, if this is something he wants us to do, who can be against us? If this is what he has asked us to do and he sent us, who is going to be able to stop us from doing what he asked except ourselves? Then Moses gave the excuse of resistance. Moses answered, well, what if they don't believe me or listen to what I say and say the Lord did not appear to you? And at this point, what you would expect or hope, what most of us would hope for is that the Lord would reassure him and say, yeah, they will listen or give him some guarantee of success. However, God did not do that. In fact, he did the opposite. He gave Moses a series of signs to perform, and he told him, they're probably not going to believe this first one, so here's a second one, and then a third one, and then if they still don't listen, come back to me and figure out what to do. (laughs) They still may not. Now, I don't know about you, that's not very encouraging. Moses was probably like, I don't know about this. And sometimes we have the expectation that obedience will produce immediate results. But God doesn't always operate that way. In fact, most of the time, it takes a long period of faithfulness before you begin to see all that God has been doing the whole time. If you give up, you never see it. Have you ever gone to the gym, and after months of eating poorly and not exercising at all, you do one 30-minute workout, and then you're looking in the mirror after your workout, and you're checking yourself out to see if anything changed. <laughs> Come on, we've all done that, right? Yeah. Change takes time. But not just time. Time by itself doesn't fix anything. Right. It's consistency over time. Fruit is for the faithful. And even faithfulness doesn't guarantee any timeline for results. Sometimes... God even tells people he sends, they're not going to listen to you, but go anyway. That's what he did for Ezekiel, the prophet. He told him in Ezekiel chapter 3, but the people of Israel are not willing to listen to you because they are not willing to listen to me. For the Israelites are hardened and obstinate, but I will make you as unyielding and hardened as they are. I will make your forehead like the hardest stone, harder than flint. Do not be afraid of them or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious people. And then God went on to tell him, if you warn them and they don't listen, they will be guilty, but you will be innocent because you did your job. But if you don't go to them, they're going to die and it's going to be your fault. You're also going to be guilty. That's crazy, right? Yeah. But it's what he said. 
We have a responsibility to share the truth to people. We are obligated by God's love. No one who has experienced the love and faithfulness of God to keep pursuing us time and time again when we were running from Him is free from the most natural response in the world to tell someone about it. Yeah. And Jesus promised that there would be resistance. If you haven't had anyone scoff at you or insult you yet, you probably aren't being a witness to them. Or there's something really missing. Probably there's a lack of boldness. Jesus himself said in the book of John, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. He's saying, if people don't have a problem with you, maybe there is a problem with you. As it is, if you do not belong to the world, as it is, you do not belong to the world because I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute, persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. When you take on the message of the cross, you take on the cross itself. Yeah. You become Jesus to people in a real way. They can't picture or conceive what God is really like, so you represent him in a way that people can better understand. That's what it means to be a Christ ambassador. Yeah. Yeah. And people who are running from God are generally hostile towards him because they know that if they stopped and listened, they would have to change something about their life, and that's uncomfortable. You may be the object of their hostility and their scoffing and their harsh words, but by being a friend and being kind to them when they don't deserve it, and speaking the truth to them when the Spirit lays, on, lays it on your heart and being bold, they're forced to think of God every time they see you yeah. and they get another chance. So Moses used the excuses of unworthiness and then of resistance. Then, Moses pleaded the excuse of incompetence. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Then you can feel the Lord beginning to change his tone a little bit. You ever had an argument or a conversation with your parents where you could kind of feel a shift from understanding to, all right, you better listen. That's what this was like. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who made them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. God told Moses, He's saying, I made you, and I know better than you what you are capable of. Who are you to question what I have made you able to do. On what grounds can you tell me that my commands are impractical when I'm the one who specifically formed you to be able to perform them, to obey them? And God gives him a promise in telling Moses to go and to speak. He reminds him, now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. God promises to help us. Do you feel incompetent? Is a disciple. 
Some of you are small group leaders and you feel that, and it's okay. I felt that for a long time. I still feel that sometimes. And I've been doing this a while. Do you lack the knowledge of how to make new friends? Or how to hold a conversation? Or how to bring Jesus up in a conversation? Or how to lead someone through the process of becoming a disciple? God promises to be with you and to teach you what to say. And you need to hold on to that promise. What a beautiful promise it is. But are you willing? Are you willing? The letter from James tells us that if anyone lacks wisdom, they can ask God and he'll give it to them. But we have to really believe that he's going to answer us. Yeah. And that he'll give it. And we have to be ready to act. And so then God gave him further assurance. He told Moses that he's not going to have to do it alone. He sent a brother with him. And he was to help him in the ways that he was weak. Sometimes it can be difficult for people to obey God because they feel like they have to do everything on their own without any help. Or sometimes they feel like backed up in a corner because they don't want other people to see what's really going on in their lives. But God has given you brothers and sisters and you're stronger together. And you got to stay right with them. And you got to stay open with them. Because they're going to help you. Don't try to do things yourself or you'll probably fail. I've seen it time and time again. People that really mean well, but they try to do it alone. So Moses tried these excuses, unworthiness, resistance, even incompetence. And then God showed him a way through each of these. And finally, in desperation, Moses threw out the worst excuse of all, unwillingness. Finally, he's out of excuses, and Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. And this is the first time it says that the Lord got angry. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. Can you imagine what God's burning anger feels like? You shall speak to Aaron and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and teach you what to do. God was patient with Moses, and he answered all of his concerns. But the one excuse the Lord will not tolerate is our unwillingness. That's good. He will not. He's patient with us in any felt area or lack of lack or need, but his anger burns when we are disobedient. Many would question, how do we really know that it's disobedience? How do I know that I am called to make disciples? How do I know that it wasn't written for someone else? What does discipleship even mean? Can God really expect this from me? Doesn't he see that I'm socially awkward or that I have social anxiety? Doesn't he see whatever excuse you want to insert? Come on. Discipleship is not an optional add-on to an otherwise fulfilling Christian life. Discipleship is a Christian life. Discipleship is not a vague suggestion to be considered. Discipleship is the clear command of God. And we will be held accountable for our response of either willing obedience or open defiance. That's good. Let me prove it to you. In Matthew chapter 28, 19-20, Jesus' last thing he said, he said, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the end of the age. In Mark, he says the same thing. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He was speaking to all of his disciples and all he would come after them. Acts reveals to us that Jesus spoke these things to a crowd of all of his followers just before he ascended into heaven. It was not just for the twelve, but for everyone who believed in him, intended to be passed along to all who would follow. It's for every Christian. How do we know? How do we know it's for to be passed on? Matthew 9, chapter, uh, verse 36 through 38. Jesus is in front of this big crowd. He says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He was concerned about them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. There's plenty of people out there who are willing to respond, but the workers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 5, he says, he who gathers crops in summer is a wise son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. There is a harvest to be brought in, and God intends as many workers as possible to bring it in, but many sleep through the harvest. They miss their opportunities. Jesus said in John, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to my Father who sent me. And then again in Matthew, as we said earlier, he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? And then in your name, drive out demons. And in your name, perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Apparently, doing God's will is inseparably tied to loving Him. And therefore, living for Him. If discipleship is a command, we must obey as an act of love if we're truly to be right with Him. James the brother of Jesus, who became a prominent leader in the church, said, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith in God but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And then First John, the closest disciple of Jesus says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever said, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. How did Jesus live? How did Jesus live? 
Read the stories. You'll find that Jesus regarded prayer and disciple-making as the two most important jobs of his whole life. And lastly, James says again, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Sin separates us from God. The command to make disciples has been clearly stated as a non-negotiable command for all who call themselves children of God. Jesus left us no room for misunderstanding. He gave us no excuses to lean on in opting out. And he reserved for us no consolation for disobedience. Jesus gave us both the clearest demonstration and the plainest enunciation of discipleship that has ever been uttered in the history of humanity. We are left to choose decisively between either wholehearted obedience and devotion or blatant disobedience. There is no other way. I've heard some say, preach the gospel always. Use words when necessary. This, however, as well-meaning as it might be, is at best a serious misunderstanding of Jesus' command to preach the gospel and make disciples, and at worst, a subtle way of justifying disobedient unwillingness to be bold for the kingdom of God. Demonstration without proclamation leads to misinterpretation. There's a man who moved into a new community with the hope of living in such a way that his actions would lead others to ask him about the gospel. This way, he would get to share Jesus without ever having to wonder if it was the right time to bring it up or without any risk of resistance. So he lived for two years faithfully serving those he worked with. He listened to them, was kind to them. He did everything he could do to let his light shine before others, but with no explanation. And finally, one day after two years of patiently waiting, one of his coworkers asked him, I want to ask you something. I, I've been watching you closely, and I noticed there's something different about you. You're kinder than others. You listen to people. And I noticed that when I'm anxious, you're really relaxed. And this man was elated as he waited for his, finally, his opportunity to share the gospel. And then his coworker said, I'm pretty sure it's your yoga class on Tuesday nights. Can I come with you? Demonstration without proclamation leads to misinterpretation. Yeah. You may try your best to live as an example for others, and you should, but if there's no explanation for the hope that you have, how will others come to know the reason? Yeah. Peter said, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. And then Paul said, how will they hear the good news unless someone tells them? On the other hand, proclamation without demonstration leads to hypocrisy. Jesus called people hypocrites all the time. That's a good way to make friends. But why did he do it? Because they would live one way and speak another. And he needed to tell them the truth and help them to see that their life was not matching their words. We all have ways that we're trying to grow. But in order to be able to faithfully proclaim the gospel, we must be blamelessly and sincerely striving for holiness. 
We must repent of all sin, and we've got to believe that God will really make us holy. And we've got to take steps to do all that we know every day with all the strength that we have. The power of a life lived for Christ will serve to amplify the words that we speak about Him. God sends us out of His compassion for people. He feels their pain and acts decisively to rescue them. If you are to faithfully proclaim the truth of God to the people of God, you must ask for the compassion of God. Yeah. There should be a pain in your stomach, an ache in your heart that empathizes with the sorrow of God over the brokenness of the world, or you will never care enough. You must allow yourself to feel the hurt that God feels. There's no other way around it. Can you imagine God looking at his creation and seeing students in college dorms stumbling around, drunk out of their minds, half naked, going to meet some guy or girl on a Friday night? Can you imagine how God feels about that son or daughter? Until you feel that, you'll never want to go and be their friend. Proclamation is not empty words written by someone else that you recite to somebody. Proclamation will be useless coming from a divided heart. True proclamation in the context of a demonstration of the life of God can only come from the echo of the passionate cry of a father who hears the cries of his children. Demonstration married to proclamation leads to a true expression of Christian discipleship and it fulfills the commands of Christ. Are you demonstrating a life lived for God? Are you speaking the truth of God? And do you feel his pain? Do you see his holiness? Are you willing to carry out God's mission? If you are, you must be willing to make a lasting commitment to doing whatever it takes to learn how to make disciples. It's not going to happen quickly. Fruit will not come quickly, but only in consistency and faithfulness to keep trying and keep learning and getting back up again. You must make that kind of commitment that will last until you see it happen. The thing is, God is going to bring our campus and our world out of slavery. He's promised he's going to. He's going to transform our campus and he's going to make it bright and beautiful. Where students used to wobble in their shoes, he's going to fill them instead with his spirit and then he's going to send them all over the world in their right minds, preaching the gospel to those who have never heard it before. Literally ever. Where students used to not care about anything or have any goals or vision for their lives, God is going to give them not, a, not only a vision for their own lives, but for cities and for workplaces and for countries, for universities. Yeah. And he's going to send them out. Yeah. And where students used to not know how to have a conversation with each other or how to make friends, God is going to establish cherished friendships in groups like families so precious that we cannot now imagine them. Yeah. God will remove the slavery 
from this campus and from students. The question is, are you willing to be the one that he uses to make it happen? Yeah, or are good. you going to sit on the, on the sideline in disobedience and miss out? God uses men and women to save men and women. Will you be that man or that woman that is willing to go and willing to speak? You have a decision to make and you've got to stick to it. So I'm going to pray and then if you decide that you're going to make this choice to learn how to make disciples and not turn back and you haven't made it or you've made it and you've been floundering on it, then you need to go and find your small group leader or your resource leader and tell them the excuses you've been making and ask them to hold you accountable. Okay, so I'm gonna pray and then we'll be done. Jesus, we love you so, so much. Jesus, I pray that you'd remind us once again of all that you've done for us, of how kind and how sweet and how gentle you've been to us all these years and all these months. Thank you, Jesus, that you're willing to meet every concern, every need, every weakness. And Jesus, thank you that you are the living water that can quench every thirst, that can fill every deep chasm of empty, lifeless desert of need in the human soul. Thank you, Jesus, that you are sufficient to meet every need that every person on this campus could come to you and you'd have still more to give away. Yeah. And that you're, you're willing to use anyone who's willing to say yes. Jesus, help us to see your heart in this, Jesus. Help us to feel the compassion you feel. Oh Lord, so that we can respond rightly. We need your help, Jesus. Amen.